Good morning, church. This morning's reading is taken from 2 Samuel 12, from verse 1 to 25. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wife into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me, took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. You will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You, you are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he came, became ill. David pleaded for the child, he fasted, went into his house and spent the night laying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. 
for they thought while the child was still alive we spoke to David but he would not listen to us now can we tell him the child is dead he may do something desperate David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves and he realized the child was dead is the child dead he asked yes they replied he is dead then David got up from the ground after he had washed put on lotions and changed his clothes he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped then he went to his own house and at his request they served him food and he ate his servants asked him why are you acting this way while the child was alive you fasted and wept but now that the child is dead you get up and eat he answered while the child was still alive I fasted and wept I thought who knows the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live but now that he's dead why should I fast can I bring him back again I will go to him but he will not return to me then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and lay with her she gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon the Lord loved him and because the Lord loved him he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedediah this is God's word Well, Faye, thank you very much indeed. And again, my thanks to the team for putting that wonderful, wonderful video together for the children. It's an amazing thing to think that the same video we've watched this morning uh, is being shown at St. Simon's Church in London this morning uh, and also in Redeemer Church in Accra in Ghana. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And it's certainly been my prayer that um, the Lord would show each child involved in that marvellous production of their place in God's worldwide family. It's a very visual way of bringing that home, isn't it? So let's join our prayers together for that. Won't you please keep your Bible open at the passage that Faye has just read for us and I will ask for the Lord's help as we study it together. Well, God, our Father, we know that it's only when you open a door for the word into our hearts that your word can enter and change us. And so we pray that as we come to your word now that you would do that tremendous work of opening the door into each heart here. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin uh, this morning by introducing you to Colin and Emma and Jamal, three real people from a real local church. Uh, Colin's life was turned around when he became a Christian. Uh, He left an adulterous relationship and he stopped getting drunk. 
But a few years on, his Christian growth seems to have plateaued somewhat. And uh, like many other Christians, he appears respectable enough on the surface, but those close to him know that he has a terrible temper. He is not someone you would ever want to cross. Then there's Emma. Uh, If shopping were an Olympic sport, uh, Emma would be a medal contender. She's not had an easy life. Uh, Shopping cheers her up. Uh, New clothes, something for the home, luxury goods, these are the bright spots in her life. They are her compensations. But it means, of course, that money's a bit tight and she hasn't got very much spare cash to give to those in need. And then there's Jamal. Everyone said Jamal would be a tremendous asset to the church. Uh, He was godly, he was diligent, he was well taught. But it soon became clear that his diligence was driven by a desperate need to prove himself. He badly needs a role. But the fear of failure is exhausting. And so there are dark moods, there are periods of withdrawal, and there are tears. Now those profiles of real people come from a book entitled You Can Change by Tim Chester. And they highlight, I think, what is perhaps the greatest unspoken challenge facing the church in our day. That is the challenge of personal change. You see, I think every Christian knows, at least in their minds, that the good news of the Gospel is the forgiveness of sins that is mine the moment I put my trust in Christ. We know it, we rejoice in it, most of us, I think, are comfortable talking about it. What we're much less comfortable talking about is what the Apostle Paul means when he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Most of us, I think, read that, and if we're being honest, we say, look, the plain truth is that while there are some signs that the new man has come, the old man has not gone. He's still very much alive and kicking. Now, to varying degrees, that, I think, is the problem facing every Christian. But because we don't really know what to do about it, we don't talk about it. It seems that personal change is not an acceptable topic of conversation in polite Christian society. Now, that is dangerous. Because as the Apostle John says in his first letter, whoever claims to live in Christ must walk as Jesus did. So you see, personal change is not an optional extra for the Christian It's proof that my faith is genuine. So, how does lasting change come about in the life of the ordinary Christian? Is it all God's work, or do we have a part to play? And if so, what is it? Well, one of the best ways, I think, to find the answer to a question like this is to look at a case study. And uh, we have one of the best in the Bible in front of us in 2 Samuel 12 this morning. 
To keep matters simple, let me give you the main message of the study. It is that biblical confession is the key to lasting change. Biblical confession is the key to lasting change. Now, if that proposition is true, then it follows, doesn't it, that if we're trapped in established patterns of sin, then we haven't properly understood what the Bible means by confession. That's logical, isn't it? We may have thought we were confessing our sins, when actually, according to the word of God, we were doing something rather different. That's pretty obvious. But sometimes you see the the obvious truths are the ones that we miss, aren't they? We think we know them. In fact, we've only really scratched the surface. So, for the next few minutes, let's see how this text in God's Word helps us towards a right understanding of confession as the necessary condition for lasting change. David's experience in this chapter suggests four distinct stages in the process. We'll use those as our main headings. So, first, God pursues us. Now, you see, if somebody offends us or hurts us in some way, we may perhaps decide we don't want anything more to do with them. That's pretty common, isn't it? That is not God's way. If we're Christians, when we offend God, God won't let us go. He pursues us. And often he does it in ways that we're not expecting. That's the first thing. Second thing, God opens our eyes. When we sin, I think we're usually pretty slow to see it. That's how it is for me. I guess it could be that way for you as well. And we're even slower to see the seriousness of it. But God can always find a way to open our eyes. Then the third step in biblical confession is that we own our sin. We don't blame our parents. We don't blame our spouse. We don't blame our circumstances. And we certainly don't blame God. We actually own our sin. And then fourth, we trust God's promises as we heard from Evelyn's reading earlier, to the believer who truly confesses and repents of their sin, God makes wonderful promises, doesn't he? Of forgiveness and restoration. And you and I need to learn to trust those promises. Some of us are not very good at that. Which is why more often we're like Colin and Emma and Jamal. Our lives look pretty much as they did before we were Christians. And that's because we're not really trusting God's promises. So let's think about those four aspects of biblical confession a little bit more closely. Number one, God pursues us. Now last week we noticed, didn't we, that David's sin was not an isolated lapse in his spiritual concentration that happened when he saw Bathsheba in the shower. There was a very long period before that when David had been drifting spiritually. 
Whether his power and success have gone to his head or not, we don't know. What we do know is that God has become very unreal to David at this point in his life. We saw last week that in chapter 11, the Lord's name isn't even mentioned until the very last verse. And then after his adultery with Bathsheba, there's another long interval, somewhere between nine months and a year, before the confrontation with Nathan in our passage this morning. And all that time, David was continuing to drift spiritually. Now I know that because David is one of the Bible's heroes and he has the reputation of being a wonderfully godly man, we want to know what was really going on in David's head. We want to know what he was thinking and feeling during that long period when his relationship with God appeared to be almost beyond repair. Well, we don't have to guess about that. Because sometime later, David wrote two psalms about this particular episode. And together, they think, I think, give us a very clear description of his own spiritual and emotional experience at this point in his life. Keep a finger, please, in 2 Samuel. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Psalm 32, I'll read from verse 1. David says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Well, just so far. So, during the long months before his confession, can you see that life wasn't a bed of roses for David? Verses 3 and 4 tell us that he was suffering. Indeed, his spiritual and emotional suffering was so intense, they had physical symptoms. Do you see there? He had no strength. Now, why was that? What was the cause? Well, talking about God in verse 4, David says, Your hand was heavy upon me. So David looks back at that awful time in his life and he can see quite clearly that whilst God might have been silent, he never let him go. Not even for a second. God had his hand heavily on him. He was pursuing him. So, Nathan's visit 
in chapter 12 was a wonderfully gracious act on God's part, but it's important for us to see that that wasn't the start of the process. It was the climax of a process in which God had kept his hand firmly on his servant. And if you're a Christian here this morning, one of the lessons from our passage is that God loves you far too much to let you get comfortable in your sin. Now that's not how most people think about God. They imagine him turning a blind eye to their sinful behaviour and they think they can turn back to him whenever they feel like it. But God doesn't work like that. He's got a million different ways to get our attention. We might not like that idea very much. It sounds a bit uncomfortable. But let me ask you, what if he didn't? Wouldn't that be worse? So surely the the right response to this passage is to be asking whether there are any areas in our own lives where God might be pursuing us this morning, wanting to get our attention. Because if there are, and if God is pursuing us, well, the sooner we face it, the better. Because David teaches us that there's really no point in sticking our head in the sand hoping God's just going to leave us alone because it's not going to happen. So so the road to biblical confession starts usually with God pursuing us. Now you might want to just keep a marker in Psalm 32 because we're going to come back to it a little later but for now come back to 2 Samuel 12 as we consider the second stage in the process, which is that God opens our eyes. Now, I don't know whether you agree with me about this, but I think that most of us assess the seriousness of our sin by our own standards, which, of course, usually means that, as far as we're concerned, our sins are really not that serious at all. But the main message in this passage is that lasting change can only happen when I first see my sin from God's point of view. And the genius in chapter 12 is the way that God uses Nathan's parable in the opening verses to, as it were, get under David's radar screen so that David can see his sin as God sees it. Now let's just think about this. Let's enter into the world of the parable for a moment. David, as king, was responsible for hearing civil lawsuits and he then pronounced judgment. So the case presented by Nathan in the parable might have seemed to David rather like a normal day at the office. Having been a shepherd himself, Uh, He may have felt a special concern for the injustice, the unjust treatment of the poor man, losing his precious lamb. Either way, in verse 5, we're told, aren't we, that David burned with anger. Now, why was he so angry? Well, in Nathan's story, the rich man took something that wasn't his. It's pretty obvious. But of course, in taking Bathsheba, 
David had taken a woman that belonged to someone else. Secondly, and more significantly, the rich man in the parable took something he didn't love. In verse 2, just have a look at it, Nathan tells David that the poor man raised the ewe lamb like one of his own children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. The man loved this little sheep. But when David took Bathsheba, he didn't love her. He didn't even know her name. And thirdly, the the rich man took something he didn't need. We're told, aren't we, that he had a large number of sheep and cattle of his own. He could easily have killed one of them. And as we saw last week, David already had many wives and concubines. He certainly didn't need another one. Now, the point here is, you see, that if Nathan had simply confronted David with the bare facts of his adultery, his lying and his murder, David might have been quite likely to deny the whole thing. But the genius of the parable is that it it has the effect of getting David to see his sin from God's point of view. And so, this is the clever bit, when David pronounces the death sentence on the rich man, he's actually pronouncing judgment on himself, isn't he? And he's totally unprepared for Nathan's famous words, you are the man. Now, of course, we don't have prophets today to come and tell us brilliant parables. But we have something far better. Because if we're born again, we have the Holy Spirit living inside us. And as one writer says it quite brilliantly, as we read the Word, it is the Holy Spirit's ministry to make us see that we're poverty-stricken because of our sin, and the Holy Spirit comes to us and says, you are the man, you are the woman, it's you. Now what I want us to notice here is that God is never simply concerned with the sin which is obvious and which actually everybody else can see. Because if our confession is going to be truly life-changing, if it's going to be habit-breaking, God needs to open our eyes to see the sin beneath the sin. And in David's case, the underlying sin is revealed in verses 8 to 10. In verse 8, God reminds David of all that he's done for him giving him Saul's household, making him king. And notice the very moving words, I think, at the end of verse 8. God says, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. In other words, David, can you even begin to doubt my love for you? And then twice, God names the underlying sin the sin which is actually the cause of all the others. Verse 9, 
Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And again, verse 10, Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me. Do you see the connection? In God's eyes, the worst sin here is that David despised the Lord who loved him and he did it by despising his word. One of my favourite composers is Haydn. Uh, His music, I think, has a delightfully cheerful quality about it. But it would seem that his cheerfulness didn't come from his wife. Uh, Haydn's biographer says that his wife had such little respect for his composing genius that she used to cut up his musical manuscripts and use them for hair curling papers. Now, think about it. When she did that, was she simply expressing her contempt for his music? No, she wasn't. What she did with his music was a sign of her contempt for him. And you see, friends, that's what we're doing when we despise God's word. We're actually despising God himself. And until we see that, no lasting change is possible. God's got to open our eyes so that we see our sin from his point of view and especially to see that when we despise his word we're actually despising God himself. And that is the second important step in biblical confession. God opens our eyes. The third step then is that once God has opened our eyes (coughs) we've got to own our sin. I think if I had to highlight one thing that we find the hardest in confession, this would probably be it. But it's absolutely crucial. I think perhaps the best way to get at this is to mention two of our most common errors in this area. The first is the fact that we tend to mix our confession with excuses. So we say, uh, Lord, I'm really sorry I did this, but... And then fill in the blank. Uh, I'm under intense pressure at work. Uh, My wife doesn't love me. Uh, I haven't had any fun for a long time. I mean, you can think of your own thing to fill in the gap. But of course, when we talk to God like that, we're not confessing, we're complaining. We're blaming someone else, even perhaps God himself, for our sinful behaviour. We haven't yet seen our sin from God's point of view. And this is where I think David's example is so very instructive for us. Nathan confronts him with his sin, and in verse 13, David says very simply, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses. He's not blaming anybody else. He's owning his sin. And that is the crucial difference between David and Saul. Quickly turn back, will you please, to 1 Samuel chapter 15 so that you can see the difference. 
1 Samuel chapter 15. While you're turning there, let me tell you that in the context, Saul was instructed by the Lord to utterly destroy the Amalekites, the the bitter enemies of the people of God. The destruction order covered everything belonging to the Amalekites, including sheep and cattle. But while Saul destroyed the army, he kept back the best of the sheep and cattle for himself. Samuel hears about it, and he goes to see Saul. We'll pick it up at verse 13. Can we all see verse 13 in our Bibles? When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Do you see? Saul was saying, don't blame me, blame the soldiers. So so Saul's confession, you see, was fatally flawed. And we know from the rest of the book that Saul was not forgiven. Now, our excuses might be more subtle than Saul's, but they're still excuses. And the Christian author, Jerry Bridges, has a marvellous comment on this, which I hope is going to appear on the screen in a moment. It comes from a book called The Pursuit of Holiness. And here's how Jerry Bridges describes the way that we excuse ourselves. Quote, Too often we say we are defeated by this or that sin. No, we are not defeated, we're simply disobedient. It might be well if we stopped using the terms victory and defeat to describe our progress in holiness. When I say I'm defeated by some sin, I am unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility. I'm saying something outside of me has defeated me. But when I say I'm disobedient, that places the responsibility for my sin squarely on me. We may, in fact, be defeated, but the reason we're defeated is because we've chosen to disobey. Well, that's very good, isn't it? The second common error uh, in our confession is that we tend to think that the acceptability, the quality of our confession has got something to do with the number of words that we use and... um, you know, the the longer the confession is and provided it's couched in the right ecclesiastical language, that's got more cash value with God. So, it's rather a relief, I think, into Samuel to find that in the original, David's confession is just two words. In fact, chapters 11 and 12 are structured around three phrases of two words each in the Hebrew. 
Bathsheba's message to David, chapter 11, verse 5, I am pregnant, two words. Nathan's accusation in chapter 12, verse 7, you are the man, two words. David's confession, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord, two words. And you see, in the original, those three phrases of just two words each, they stand out as the the marker posts in the text, precisely because they're so short. And the point is that David's confession is acceptable in God's sight, not because of its length, but because he makes no excuses. He's not trying to blame anyone else. He takes full responsibility for his own sin. And that brings us to the fourth point this morning, which is that the the final stage in biblical confession is that we trust God's promises. Now in the chapter, uh, chapter 12, God makes two promises to David. That can be ours as well. How do we get there? Well, I've just said that David's confession is acceptable in God's sight. The question is, how do we know that? Well, under Old Testament law, the penalty for adultery was death, the penalty for murder was also death. So, until his confession, David was facing a double double death sentence. But look at verse 13. Immediately after his confession, Nathan says to David... The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. So so the first promise that God makes is that David is forgiven. But how does David know that? Well, friends, this is where it becomes difficult. Because in the very next verse, verse 14, David is told, The son born to you will die. Now this is difficult. The death of the innocent son is mentioned five times in these verses. And all kinds of questions come flooding into our minds at this point. For a start, how can God let a sinner like David live and let this innocent child die in his place? I have to tell you frankly, I don't have all the answers to that question. But what I do want to say is that as ugly as this might seem to us, it is actually the truth at the heart of the Gospel. The truth at the heart of the Gospel is that I deserve to die, but God gives me life because the perfectly innocent Jesus has died in my place. And because he died, and because God is just, and he won't punish the same sin twice. I can be absolutely 100% certain I'm forgiven. Now that is the first promise I've got to trust if I'm ever going to change. I am forgiven. But God makes a second promise to David, which is the promise of restoration. Because in our passage, there isn't just one son, there are two. 
So in verse 24, if you'd like to look at it, we read, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. So one son, two names. The name Solomon, of course, comes from the same root as the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace. And the Lord gives him another name, Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord. So can you see, there's absolutely no doubt at this point that David knows that his relationship with God has been restored and that the covenant, therefore, is secure. Now, why is this so important for us this morning? Well, because it means, of course, that there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. No matter how great my sin, once I've seen it, once I've owned it as mine, and once I've confessed it, I am forgiven. I am forgiven. And my relationship with God is perfectly and fully restored. As we close, I want you to notice with me how this process of confession changed David. So if you've still got a finger in Psalm 32, flick back there and notice with me, please, the very last verse in the psalm. Psalm 32, the very last verse in the psalm. Let's <clears throat> give you a moment to get there. Just remember, will you, as you're turning there, that beforehand, David had been utterly deflated, he'd been weighed down by the guilt of his sin, but now, at the end of the psalm, he's confessed his sin. End of the last verse, David says, Rejoice in the Lord, and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. So he's full of joy and praise. And I want to say to you, friends, that that is the, the first sign that real confession has taken place. Joy and praise. And I wonder if that is your experience. In a moment, we're going to separate, uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We're going to start by confessing our sin. And then as we take the bread and the grape juice, we'll remember that the perfect, sinless, innocent Jesus died in our place. And we're going to remember that we have received God's promise of full and free forgiveness. And then at the end of our service, we're going to be singing the hymn that begins with these absolutely wonderful words. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. 
And friends, if we know, really know, that we have been forgiven, well, surely, we will be rejoicing with David as we sing that hymn. Well, let's be quiet for a moment, reflect on our own lives, and I will then lead us in the confession as preparation for the Lord's Supper. Let's have a moment of quiet.